Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Even though Kim Il-sung's death might have seemed out of nowhere and suddenly tragic for North Korea, the transition of power from Kim Il-sung to Kim Jong-il was a gradual one. Barbara Demick is a journalist who's stationed in South Korea, and she has interviewed several North Korean defectors. Uh, Here's a quote from her book, Nothing to Envy, that I think is a nice illustration of how gradual that transfer of power was. She writes, quote, In 1972, on the occasion of his 60th birthday, a traditional milestone in Korean culture, the Workers' Party began distributing lapel pins of Kim Il-sung. Before long, the entire population was required to wear them on the left breast, over the heart. In Mrs. Song's home, Mrs. Song is one of the former North Koreans that Demick interviewed, as in every other, a framed portrait of Kim Il-sung hung on an otherwise bare wall. People were not permitted to put anything else on that wall, not even pictures of their blood relatives. Kim Il-sung was all the family you needed at least until the 1980s, when portraits of Kim Jong-il, named secretary of the Workers' Party, were hung alongside those of his father. Later came a third portrait of the father and son together. The North Korean newspapers liked to run human interest stories about heroic citizens who lost their lives rescuing the portraits from fire or flood. The Workers' Party distributed the portraits free of charge, along with a white cloth to be stored in a box beneath them. It could be used only to clean the portraits. This was especially important during the rainy season, when specks of mold would creep under the corners of the glass frame. About once a month, inspectors from the Public Standards Police would drop by to check on the cleanliness of the portraits. Unquote. And I really like that little anecdote. Because you can see, in people's homes, with propaganda that they are required to have, first there is just Kim Il-sung, then there is Kim Jong-il, then there's the two of them together. There's continuity there. And that continuity between Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il was something very deliberately created by the elder and younger Kims together. And... It is also why Kim Jong-il was probably able to rule at all. So Demick in her description mentioned that most North Koreans started knowing about Kim Jong-il in the 1980s, but he was named as a successor much earlier than that. In 1974, at a Central Committee of the Korean Workers' Party gathering. However, his official successorship wasn't widely known until late in 1980. And during much of the time between 1974 and 1994, Kim Jong-il was probably involved more with the day-to-day governance of North Korea than his father was. Probably. Again, we don't have a lot of good sources on how the Kim regime works from the inside, but a few episodes ago, when I was talking about various North Korean operatives going around and trying to make trouble and assassinate people in the 1970s and 1980s, and in episode two when I talked about the notorious axe murder incident, 
Kim Jong-il was probably the guy masterminding those. His father, from the 70s onward, it seems, was more busy with going around to factories and farms, looking at things and telling everyone what a good job they were doing. And choosing his son as his successor, well, it might seem weird to a lot of outsiders, because we like to think of North Korea as a communist country, and communism and monarchy don't really go all that well together. But keep in mind that North Korea has always had its own weird flavor of communism and uses or doesn't use communism to basically pursue its own ends. This is a country that prior to Kim Il-sung was, again, occupied by Imperial Japan. Prior to that, it was a monarchy in some form or another for as long as we know of. So really, it's not that weird for people who would live there. In fact, for many North Koreans, it probably gave Kim Jong-il more traditional legitimacy, not less. And Kim Il-sung really wanted to make sure that what he built would outlive him. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but in the 1950s, when Stalin died, Kim Il-sung was shocked to see that the cult of Stalin died with him. The Soviet Union went from being a country that was run by charismatic leadership to a country run by bureaucratic leadership. Kim Il-sung wanted his cult to persist, and really, somebody close to him, like his son, was the only one who could really do it. So, who is this guy? Who is Kim Jong-il? Well, according to North Korean propaganda, Kim Jong-il was born on the culturally all-important slopes of Mount Paekdu, the supposed location of his father's rebel base during World War II. But that's not all there is to his birth story. Being born on, supposedly, the single most important piece of geography in Korea isn't enough. Propaganda also states that Kim Jong-il's birth was heralded by a double rainbow. Yes, a double rainbow. What does it mean? Kim Jong-il, apparently. In fact, though, the younger Kim wasn't born on Mount Paekdu. In fact, he wasn't born in Korea at all. He was born in a Siberian camp during World War II, and he wouldn't set foot in Korea until after the war was over, and he was about four years old. Unlike his father, who did make his bones in the Red Army, the younger Kim never fought a day in his life. Probably never really suffered a day in his life, other than when he was quite young. He also lacked his father's charisma. Kim Il-sung loved giving speeches. He loved appearing in public. He loved going out in public and telling people what a good job that they were doing on the thing they were doing. He was eager to cover himself in glory and turn himself into an icon. His son, not so much. Kim Jong-il gave only one public speech during his entire time in power, and it was less than a minute long. He was much more of a behind-the-scenes type of guy. And he was every bit the decadent little princeling. So, Kim Jong-il, yes, he did do a bunch of actual work of running the state and telling people to go try to assassinate the president of South Korea or come at a bunch of U.S. and South Korean soldiers and axe-murder them to death. 
so I don't want to give you the impression that he was a layabout. He wasn't. But he was also extremely indulgent. For one, he was a huge cinephile. He maintained an immense collection of movies, thousands of movies, and apparently really enjoyed James Bond films, particularly Die Another Day, the one with a North Korean villain. Uh, Supposedly, that was one of his favorites. Uh, He also enjoyed Godzilla. Maybe he liked watching Japan getting destroyed and was a big fan of the Friday the 13th series. Perhaps that's where he got the axe murder idea. Now, I love horror movies. Uh, Friday the 13th? Not a great series. Unlike Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, there's not even one good movie in there. Anyways, it's not important. We're talking about North Korea right now, not Joe's opinions about horror movies. But Kim Jong-il liked movies so much that he wrote, or possibly ghostwrote, a book called The Art of Cinema, and he also tried to make movies himself. The way he tried to make movies himself was by kidnapping a South Korean film director and actress, a married couple named Shin Sang-ok and Choi Eun-hee in 1978. Yes, Kim Il-sung kidnapped a pair of successful South Korean filmmakers to be his own personal meat puppets for movies that he wanted to make himself. The story is a dramatic one, but you're going to have to wait a few episodes for that when we talk about how to escape from North Korea. For now, again, we're on Kim Jong-il, a cinephile who files cinema so much that he's into kidnapping people for it. Uh, The younger Kim also likes to eat, and he likes to drink. Uh, Even as his country was plunging into famine, he apparently ate lobster several times a week. He had several palaces— Between 8 or 10, we're not sure. He had a private train, several golf courses, water parks, basketball courts. He liked video games. He was a big fan of Mario Kart and Michael Jordan-era Chicago Bulls. He also liked wrestling, as in the fake kind. And in 1995, paid $15 million for American professional wrestlers, among them Ric Flair, to do exhibition matches in North Korea. In 1997, he paid an unknown amount of money to hire chefs from Italy to make him authentic Italian cuisine. And, I already mentioned his drinking, during his lifetime, he was maybe the single biggest customer for Hennessy Paradise Cognac in the entire world. He was also apparently hungover quite a bit. Those dark glasses he wore all the time apparently served a pretty important function a lot of mornings. To be honest, Kim Jong-il sounds like kind of a bro. He sounds like the kind of privileged scion of money that I think we've all met at some point. And there's nothing wrong with liking Mario Kart and Cognac. I like those things too. But indulging in those things while your people starve is a bad look. And, in case you're wondering how this guy can get away with indulging in so much luxury while his people were in a bad way, well, again, let me remind you, he was his father's son. He is benefiting from all of the propaganda and mythology and cult of personality built up around his dad. Recall, everyone in North Korea has Kim Il-sung's portrait on their walls and his face on their lapel pin, and He is the beneficiary of that. 
That's why he gets to do this. Is that silly? Yeah. Is it tragic? Absolutely. And Kim Jong-il made good use of his father after Kim Il-sung's death. After his death, Kim Jong-il ordered even more statues, memorials, and monuments to go up around North Korea. And recall, a lot of people still had fond memories of Kim Il-sung. They remembered the good times just after World War II, just after the Korean War, when the country was actually competitive. By tapping into that very real nostalgia and very real affection that a lot of North Koreans had for his dad, Kim Jong-il was able to keep eating lobster and drinking cognac. But about that famine, when Kim Il-sung finally did die, he picked a really good time. As I mentioned last time, things were looking pretty bad for North Korea in 1994, what with the degrading economy and the end of the Cold War, but as bad as things were, Kim Il-sung made his exit just before the worst period of North Korean history. The eternal president dodged the responsibility of having to preside over a country gripped by one of the worst famines of the 20th century, one that killed between 2 to 3 million people, around 10% of North Korea's total population. There was no one single cause of the famine, but the economic degradation that persisted across the 1980s and into the 1990s takes the vast, vast majority of the blame. North Korea killed its economy, and it killed its ability to feed itself. North Korea also did a lot to destroy its already scarce farmland. I mentioned this earlier, but again, North Korea, back when the peninsula was united, was more industrialized. South Korea was more rural. So only about 20% of North Korea is actually farmland. The rest is rocky and mountainous. The regime wanted to do something about this, so they encouraged people to cut down trees and try to grow on the sides of hills and mountains. This did not turn out to be a good idea, because we all know what happens when you deforest mountain and hillside. You get things like erosion, landslides, and flooding, which further disrupted North Korea's agricultural infrastructure. Because of those short-sighted policies, food production during the North Korean famine actually decreased. And the last factor in the famine was chance. Just random chance. There was plain old bad growing seasons in the middle 90s, at an inopportune time, and North Korea did not have the food reserves or trade networks to compensate for it. Now, internationally... When the North Korean regime has talked about the famine, they have usually blamed flooding or the bad growing season. However, lots of countries have poor growing seasons. They have bad years. They have flooding. And most countries are generally able to absorb a bad year or two. In fact, when most places on earth now have a bad year, oftentimes citizens don't even notice that domestic production has fallen off because they're able to buy food from elsewhere. Stuff at the supermarket might be a bit more expensive, yes, and that might be a financial burden or something of an annoyance, but it doesn't end up killing literal millions of people. Even with the poor growing seasons, 
the North Korean regime is still responsible for creating the conditions where they weren't able to deal with what virtually every other place on Earth can deal with nowadays. Now, that's all very high level. I want to quote Barbara Demick again. Demick here is writing about Mrs. Song, whom I mentioned earlier, and she is on her way to go get groceries, etc., collect the rations that the regime allows for her and her family. Demick writes, quote, It was always a surprise what might be in the bag, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. Looking back years later, Mrs. Song couldn't pinpoint when it happened. 1989, 1990, 1991, that her rations faded away. When they handed the bag back to her, Mrs. Song didn't need to peek inside to confirm her disappointment. The bag was lighter than it used to be. They were being systematically shortchanged. One month, she might get only 25 days' worth of food. By the way, Mrs. Song here is supposed to be getting food for a month for her family. Another month, 10. Despite Kim Il-sung's promises, rice was a luxury item for North Koreans. More often now, there was only corn and barley. Cooking oil had always come sporadically, but now it was never in the bag. Mrs. Song wasn't the type to complain, not that she could have if she wanted to. If I made a fuss, they would have just come and taken me away, she said later. The North Korean government offered a variety of explanations, from the patently absurd to the barely plausible. People were told that their government was stockpiling food to feed the starving South Koreans on the blessed day of reunification. They were told that the United States had instituted a blockade against North Korea that was keeping out food. That was not true, but it was believable. North Korea in early 1993 had threatened to pull out of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and President Bill Clinton was threatening sanctions. It was convenient for Kim Il-sung to deflect blame. He could point the finger at the United States, North Korea's favorite scapegoat. The people of Korea have long suffered from the blockade and sanctions of the U.S. imperialist opined Rodong Sinmun, unquote. Rodong Sinmun, by the way, being the name of a North Korean propaganda newspaper. I know I've quoted her twice already, but bear with me. Barbara Demick's book, Nothing to Envy, is one of the best things that I read for this project. She got amazing access to people who lived through a lot of what I'm talking about, and it put a human face on a lot of other stuff that was more academic. And I like the stuff that's more academic, but, but there's nothing like this anecdote from a North Korean medical student. Quote, when she first arrived, Miran was impressed. The dormitories were modern, and each of the four girls who would share one room had her own bed rather than used to Korean bed mats laid out on a heated floor, the traditional way of keeping warm at night while expending little fuel. But as the winter temperatures plunged Chongjin into a deep freeze, she realized why it was that the school had been able to give her a place in its freshman class. The dormitories had no heating. Miran went to sleep each night in her coat heavy socks and mittens, with a towel draped over her head. When she woke up, the towel would be crusted with frost from the moisture of her breath. In the bathroom where the girls washed their menstrual rags, nobody had sanitary napkins, so the more affluent girls used gauze bandages, while the poor girls used cheap synthetic cloths. It was so cold that the rags would freeze solid within minutes of being hung up to dry. Miran hated the mornings. They were roused by a military-style roll call at 6 a.m., 
But instead of marching off like proud soldiers, they shivered into the bathroom and splashed icy water on their faces under a grotesque canopy of frozen menstrual rags. The food in the cafeteria was even worse. North Korea was starting its Let's Eat Two Meals a Day campaign, but the school took it a step further and offered only one meal, a thin soup made of salt, water, and dried turnip leaves. The cafeteria would sometimes add in a spoon of rice and corn that had been cooked for hours to plump up the grains. The girls in college began getting sick. One of Miran's roommates was so malnourished that the skin was flaking off her face. She dropped out of school, and others followed. Unquote. And again, all this while Kim Jong-il is indulging in as much lobster and Mario Kart and cognac as he likes. In the face of the famine, the government went on a propaganda blitz. You heard the slogan in that quote back there. It was, let's eat two meals a day. Now, I have a day job. I'm a marketing copywriter. And I can tell you, in my professional opinion, as a marketing person, that slogan needs work. But it was accompanied by fraudulent stories about the dangers of eating too much. Propaganda newspapers ran stories about citizens whose bellies burst from overfulness, particularly from eating too much rice, or diseases that you could get from gorging yourself. Most citizens were given between 600 to 700 grams of food a day, mostly cereal grains like corn, sometimes rice or barley, and not a lot of other nutrients. There were 800 grams for the elite, though much of the time even those amounts were not forthcoming. During that whole time, though, the famine was characterized as a kind of noble suffering, and one of the images that the government kept comparing it to was the arduous march, a supposed and almost certainly fictional march on the part of Kim Il-sung during World War II as he marched in the winter against the Japanese in pain and suffering but letting nothing stop him. North Korean citizens were encouraged to see their pain, their entirely avoidable pain, as a piece of that same noble struggle. It's as if in the face of a famine, the Kim regime decided to try to give the entire country an eating disorder. Of course, plenty of farmers began hoarding their own food rather than turning it over to the state. This was obviously illegal, and the regime did dispatch the military to crack down on any farmer whom they thought was keeping grain or other vegetables away from them. Plenty of soldiers out on patrol would arrive at a farmhouse and see that days, weeks, or months of grain was stockpiled in the attic. Soldiers, of course, were supposed to arrest these farmers for hoarding, but most of them were very easily bribed. After all, the soldiers were hungry as well, even though they got more food than other citizens. The government also looked the other way while people, for the first time, grew vegetables in private plots, sometimes their own land, outproducing the land that grew the food that was supposed to go to the state. Black markets flourished, and the government, knowing that it couldn't really do anything about them, also turned a blind eye, and it was during this famine that a certain type of deviation really took root in North Korea. And we are going to talk about quote-unquote economic reforms in a future episode, but you might be wondering, this country is starving. You have students at universities who you think would get 
pretty good stuff given that students are the future and whatnot. Eating just soup with puffed up grains of rice and not much else. Hundreds of thousands and millions of people are dying. Two to three million. Again, 10% or more of North Korea's total population died of this famine, which I can't overstate is huge. This is one of the biggest humanitarian catastrophes of all time when you look at it as a proportion of population. This is poverty. This is deprivation. And this country somehow has nukes. How is it that a country so impoverished and suffering has some of the most complicated and destructive weapons on the face of the earth? Next time, we'll talk about how North Korea got nukes. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. Thank you all for listening, and thank you all very much to everyone who contributes every month. This podcast wouldn't happen without you. If you are interested in supporting the podcast, and I hope you are, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, click the thing, send us a few bucks. You have my eternal gratitude. Also, we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. We're on iTunes. Give us ratings and reviews. That helps other people find the show. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Mm-hmm.